Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we talk about orgies, people faking leukemia, mm-hmm. fortunes gained and lost, <laughs> and arguably one of the most ridiculous U.S. trials of the 20th century. That's right. We're bringing you part two of the story of Jacques and Candace Mosler, a newspaper boy come millionaire, a small town Georgia girl with big dreams and the sexy, sexy nephew that came between them. <laughs> if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go ahead and listen to that first mm-hmm. or you won't know what's going on. <laughs> That's not our problem. <laughs> Muriel, you're uh, very enthusiastic today. Are you pretty pumped for this one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this baby. Is a, it's such a great weird story okay because i kind of feel like these are the stories that we really play for you know this is why you wake up early morning and go to practice you know what i mean for these types of game-changing stories i i I think this one is a particularly good muriel's murders oh so you do want to hear the end of this story you know i do i mean i get that the joke (laughs) is that i don't like true crime but you're just hilarious and it's Really <laughs> weirdly fun and intoxicating and embarrassing to see you get so worked up about it. That's so. fine. I'll seduce you with whatever <laughs> means necessary. Okay, great. Speaking of Muriel's seductive ways, when she says thank you for joining us at the beginning of this podcast, she means it. We are incredibly thankful that each and every one of you found us, and we'd like to take a moment to thank the people who signed up for our Patreon this week. Thanks to Kate, Katie, Jennifer, Sarah, Lindsay, and Caitlin for signing up. The ladies are in full force this week, dude. Absolutely crushing it. Thank you so much. You can find the link to our Patreon in the show notes of our episode and unlock seven Patreon-exclusive episodes with a new one coming your way every month. Okay. Thank you. Uh, This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So if you're sensitive to that, please turn this podcast off. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear this story? No. Liar. Okay, (laughs) let's get started. I do find it really comforting when you start our part two episodes mm-hmm. with a like a succinct Muriel sort of recap. Of I've last got week. you. Okay, good. I got it all put together for oh, you so I'm, you can remember what happened because well, it's been yeah. a week that you've heard this as well. That right? is right. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. I'm in my snuggly comforter. I'm comforted. Muriel, please give us a recap. <laughs> okay. So last week we left off with Jack Mossler in a pickle. Mm -hmm. It's June of 1964. Jack is in self-exile in Florida, waiting for the right time to divorce his wife for having a public affair with her nephew, Mel. Her blood nephew. Yes. So in sort of a weird power move, Candace decided to send their youngest three children to this elite Swiss boarding school in the fall. So she brought herself, the children, and kind of under the radar, uh-huh. Loki, her lover slash nephew, Mel, all to Florida for a family visit before she shipped the children away. Right? And that was something Jacques agreed to. He was like, okay, bring the kids. And he wants to say goodbye. Yeah. Right, because he still loves these kids. He still loves these kids, yeah. but Candace probably didn't need to go herself and she certainly didn't need to kind of low-key bring Mel like hide him away right, right. yeah yeah so it very much felt like a gaga you know <laughs> and just kids. for the record for anyone who maybe forgot this woman Candace Mosler came from a small town so far she has scored a Rockefeller the heir to the Rockefeller fortune uh-huh. Chuck Berry yes. the rock icon legend mm-hmm. And her husband, who's a self-made millionaire, and after that series of just unbelievably undeniable victories, she has settled on her nephew, who is her nephew, first of all, and also is like a total like gross 
like bully loser, right? Who can't hold a job and mm-hmm. like scams like old men out of magazine subscriptions. That is something that sort of escaped me when I really heard that <laughs> story for the first time. She just dug in her heels. This is what she wants to oh do. Oh my gosh. All right. She's just two middle fingers to the world. <laughs> yeah, right. She's seen the stars, but she wants to settle in the sewers. So at this point, in preparation for the divorce, Jack is keeping this diary of all of the insane crap that Candace pulls. And in the last entry in his leather-bound evidence journal, mm. it read, quote, I guess I'll have to kill Candace and Mel if they don't kill me first. Yes. And he was murdered three weeks later. Oh. So this is where we pick up our story. Love it. Police arrived at Jack Mossler's apartment on the island of Key Biscayne, just outside of Miami, around 5 a.m. on Tuesday, June 30th, 1964. So Candace was leaning against a wall in the hallway alone outside of the apartment unit, dressed in white capri slacks and an expensive pink blouse and just dripping in really expensive jewelry Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then she has her arms crossed in front of her in a little pout so when police approach her in the hallway she said something like there's been some trouble he's over there with this emphasis on he's Uh that gave investigators the impression that jack mosler was in big trouble with his wife right (laughs) so police follow candace into the apartment And in the living room near the balcony, they find a body wrapped in a blood-soaked orange blanket lying on the green carpet with a single hand poking out, clutching the drapes. So this whole time, Candace is quiet and there's kind of no movement in the house. And she's quiet up until the point the police pull back the blanket, revealing Jack's body. And Jack's body is mangled, he's naked from the waist down, and he's wearing only a tank top, which is how he typically slept. Yeah, we covered that last week. Tank top, no bottom. It plays into this story in this very odd way, especially into the trial. So just remember, we have to keep that in mind. Right, his Winnie the Pooh outfit. Yeah, well, yeah, that's actually a good point. So as soon as they pull back the blanket, Candace screams out, Oh, Jack, Jack, what have you done? Which is obviously a super weird thing to say. So everybody just looks at her like... Like she was performing as if it was the first time she had seen the body, kind of? More that why are you blaming him for obviously being murdered? Right. Like it's mm-hmm. not it's not something that he could have possibly done to himself the mm-hmm. way that when we'll talk a little bit about this. Yeah. But it, it was like immediately in front of everyone, the grieving widow is blaming Jack for doing something bad. Right. Staining the carpet. Or I don't know. That's horrible. <laughs> yeah. So. The scene is also super weird. Jack's dog had been allowed to wander around and had tracked blood all over the apartment, which mm-hmm. really actually messed up forensics later. And while investigators were trying to kind of catch this dog and corral him into a room and get a handle on the crime scene, three young children quietly emerged from another bedroom that they didn't even know were in the apartment. Yeah. And they kind of glance at police they're drinking soda pop, like Cokes out of cans. Yeah. And then they sort of casually walk into the hallway without saying anything. For what it's worth, I think we should remind listeners that those are the three kids that Jack and Candy adopted from Chicago after their father very publicly and in a state of a mental health crisis murdered their mother and infant sibling. And then... Jack felt a lot of sympathy for them because he also grew up in Chicago and they were found with like frostbite and he just remembered how cold it was to be a poor kid in Chicago and they went up there and adopted these three kids. Right. So So these kids have definitely seen some stuff. Police don't know that. So what uh, they're seeing is this kind of Shining-esque situation where... You'd think everyone would be hysterical, but they're not. Oh, shining like the two little girls in the hallway. And these little kids come out. They don't, they didn't even know the kids were there. Candace didn't say my children are here. Then they're wandering around. The dog's running around. So the whole. They're drinking like Fanta or something. Yeah. And they're all just sitting there 
the whole scene is just super odd. The tone of the scene is really weird. Yeah. Oh, man. And the hand clutching the drapes. Mm-hmm. Also, just for the record, mm-hmm. his name is Jacques Mosler, but he goes by Jack at this point. So okay. earlier in his life, he was Jacques. Now most people call him Jack. So that's why I'm calling him Jack. Yeah. And last episode, Muriel kept calling him Jacques. Jacques. <laughs> he kept pronouncing it Jacques. weird. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But he's been known by both names. According to the coroner's report, Jack was struck from behind with a heavy blunt object Mm -hmm. causing major brain damage. He was also stabbed 39 times with each stab wound being at least two inches deep, which for a frame of reference, that just takes an incredible amount of strength and force. Mm. And it also indicates a personal connection between the murderer and the victim Well, 39 times, it might as well be 5,000 times. It's so many times. And it indicates potentially that someone was motivated by some sort of personal vendetta or personal relationship that turned sour. Right, and they're just letting everything out and completely lose themselves in this horrible thing. Right, and the last eight stab wounds were made through the blanket. So that means that after stabbing Jack to death, essentially, and wrapping his body, presumably to hide it, it kind of looked like they were just trying to hide it from being, not mm-hmm. from being found, but just yeah. from being seen in its most grisly state. Yeah. Then the murderer had a compulsion to just stab him a little more through the blanket. So well, after, maybe he was a little alive still and hold out, pulled out his hand and grabbed the drape. Yeah, And then maybe. a couple more. <laughs> yeah, okay. Stay with me. Yes. Are you with me? I'm okay. with you. I'm Great. with you. It was just another indication that uh-huh. this person was probably connected to Jack in some sort of personal way. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I like your I like where your head's at. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but be quiet. Okay. Right. So <laughs> when Jack's family physician, Dr. Handworker, arrived breathless at the scene, expecting chaos and hysteria, he was also struck by the mood of the place. Around 4.45 earlier in the morning, mm-hmm. Rita Johnson, so she's the possible Rockefeller heir yeah. and stepdaughter to Jack Mosler, had called this family physician in Miami, totally hysterical, saying she and her mother had just found her father severely beaten and they thought he might be dead. And at the time, Dr. Handworker is like, girl, call an ambulance. Did you call the police? Yeah. What's going on? Why are yeah. you calling me? Right. Rita responded... Oh, you know, my mom wanted me to call you first because she's too upset to talk to police. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Handworker was like, that's an odd, that seems super odd to me. Uh And now, you know, he got dressed and he rushed over to the apartment to help this grieving family. And, you know, obviously Rita saying Candace is so upset she can't talk. And he shows up and everyone in the family is just standing around like they're at a boring party. Nobody's right. upset. Nobody's yeah. in hysterics. You yeah. know? So it struck him as, as very odd. As so well. Rita's not freaking out either. Because she's older than the three kids are sending off. To she's in her tw- early yeah. 20s. Yeah. And, yeah. and nobody's freaked out. The kids are standing in the hallway. Candace is sort of standing there with her arms crossed, shaking her head and yeah. frustration. You know, it's right. not. It, no one is crying. Yeah. So by now, word is spreading that this millionaire had been murdered in a room at the Governor's Lodge apartment complex on Key Biscayne, and the big guns were starting to show up. Mm-hmm. So Major Manson Hill was the chief of detectives in Miami-Dade County at the time, and he rolled in around 5.30 a.m. So this guy's this 20-year veteran of the forest, having investigated over 100 murders, and he was an old school cop. That's what mm-hmm. he's known for, which back then was a euphemism for hella corrupt. <laughs> okay. All right. So police yeah. at the time in Miami were famous for doing shady stuff, probably because of this long history of organized crime members living there, like mm-hmm. famously Al Capone, for instance. Right. So according to the book, No One's Perfect, between 1950 and 1966, three sitting Miami-Dade sheriffs were indicted and forced to resign due to charges of bribery or misuse of public funds. Mm. So that sort of gives you the energy of the place. Totally. And 
there was this long-standing rumor that Major Manson Hill pretty much worked for this guy, Fat Jaime Martin, who monitored gambling operations for the mob in Miami. Mm-hmm. So they were linked over and over again. And as recently as six months before he was assigned to the Mossler case, Major Hill was involved already in greasy activities. His wife was caught at a Fat Jaime-backed racetrack Uh, called the Tropical Park with a stolen bracelet. Mm -hmm. And basically this fancy tourist lady was at the Tropical Park racetrack and she noticed that Mrs. Hill was wearing the exact same bracelet that had been stolen from her hotel suite the night before. (laughs) (laughs) So the short story is a local defense lawyer known for bribing police officials to illegally steer clients his way had gotten the bracelet from a mobbed up strip club owner. So the chain of custody went mobbed up strip club owner gives the bracelet to crooked defense attorney who in turn gifts it to Major Manson Hill who then generously gives that to his wife. Right, and that's not even including whoever actually stole the thing to begin with. Right, so the police investigated, (laughs) I'm making investigate in quotes, they investigate it and they go up the chain and they finally get to the mobbed up strip club owner who was questioned and he's just like, oh, I found that on the floor. (laughs) So ultimately, after an internal investigation, Manson Hill found himself innocent. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And that was kind of the vibe of the police department, right? Also, the Dade County Sheriff at that time was promoted to be sheriff after he busted a prostitution ring. Uh, So he was at a Miami strip club and he paid a woman $7.50 for sex had sex with her, and then arrested her afterwards, (laughs) which is what he testified to in court, like really proudly. Yeah, he's like, oh, I busted the prostitution ring. Yeah, after I (laughs) had sex with the prostitute. Made sure she was a prostitute. Yeah, right. So uh, these are the two guys that are in charge of the murder investigation on the top level. Okay, great. And then Uh that obviously filters down. Okay. So investigators, they question Candace in Jack's bedroom. She sits on the bed with her legs crossed. She looks like a million bucks, like she's Mm -hmm. going to a salon appointment. And her story is she took all the kids to a hotel downtown to buy stamps around 1 a.m. and mail some bills. (laughs) What? (laughs) This is her story. Okay. And then... She got a migraine, so she went to the ER for a migraine treatment with all of the kids with her where she stayed for three hours. So that's her alibi. All right. Obviously, you're laughing. The police were also like, what are you talking about? That's the craziest alibi. But it kind of checks out, right? She did do those things. She bought. You could buy stamps at 1 a.m.? Apparently. I guess anything's possible. (laughs) She went to like a hotel lobby somewhere Uh, and found a place that was open and got some from the uh, concierge or something. All right. Now, Candace tells investigators, listen, this is clearly a robbery gone wrong because she had left two $100 bills on Mm -hmm. a side table in the apartment for absolutely no reason. Uh And then when she came back, they were gone. (laughs) Plus, also, all of her jewelry is gone. And they're like, what jewelry? And she goes, I don't know. I'm too upset to tell you. Right. (laughs) She's wearing 19 pieces of jewelry. Right. So at this point, when they start pressing her about why she thinks it's a robbery, she starts wailing. So she just breaks into this scream she starts holding her heads as if she has like the mother of all migraines and she flings herself back on the bed rolling around right Mm -hmm. so the detectives look at each other and from the beginning they Mm -hmm. feel like this woman is an actress she is so dramatic Uh this is ridiculous so they just decide to sit there and wait her out so Mm -hmm. they don't say anything and they don't say give her an out they don't say okay well we'll continue this interview right or right maybe we can give her a minute let's get her a cup of tea they just go well they just go okay well we'll just give you a minute to compose yourself yeah so she's rolling around and finally she sees it's not going to get her out of the interview (laughs) so she just sits up and continues the interview (laughs) so police know that the corpse is practically mutilated and then wrapped in this blanket there's no sign of forced entry in the apartment so the burglary theory seems pretty dumb no one's buying it although 
Candace herself starts looking more and more suspicious. So they start pressing Candace again about who she thought might have killed her husband to try mm. to see what she wants to say. Yeah. And she dramatically sighs. She gazes out the window at the ocean. And then she says, after a trip to Romania last year, her husband came back gay. He wasn't gay before, but he mm-hmm. went to Romania and Romania turned him gay. So what she guesses is probably one of his lovers killed him, stole his money, and wrapped his body in a blanket while she was shopping for stamps with her three young children in the middle of the night. So everybody's like, what? Right. So they write all this information down uh-huh. and they leave. They like let her go for the moment. Yeah. As for witnesses, there are no eyewitnesses in the apartment complex, but a lot of people heard the attack and they also heard the dog barking really loudly, Mm -hmm. um, followed by heavy footsteps running down the hallway and out of the apartment. And in addition to that, one resident said when she went out to go get cigarettes, she found herself blocked in by a red convertible idling with the motor running in the parking lot around 1 a.m. So this is around the time they said they were out getting stamps. Perhaps a sports car, red convertible sports car. Right. Mm -hmm. If we remember from part one, there's a lot of red convertible sports cars in the mix. Candace uh, and Jack have access to tons of different cars, right? Because he repossesses them and has these rental operations. Candace is known on the island for driving two cars. One Mm -hmm. is red convertible and one is a white Chevy Bel Air. And she's also known for giving her nephew access to Jack's cars. Any of the cars, right? Yes. So around 1 a.m., this witness says she was trying to back out of her space in the parking lot and this red convertible was idling. Yeah. And inside was Rita and two of the children. That's Mm. what she said she thought she saw. Yeah. What's significant about that is that they were already supposed to be gone getting stamps. So they were, she says she thinks she thinks she saw them in the, in the apartment complex. Two other residents said they saw a man with dark hair jump into a white car and drive off with the headlights turned off around 1.45 a.m. Mm-hmm. So there are two sightings of both cars in the apartment complex. Man with dark hair fits mm-hmm. the description of Mel the nephew, hey. a.k.a. the anteater. Uh- <laughs> I didn't come up with it, folks. It was the, his official nickname. And Muriel is the one that brought it to our consciousness. So all right, blame all her. right, all right. So, like I said, Candace was known for driving both cars. Mm-hmm. So, on the exact same night, mm-hmm. around 1.30 a.m., on the small island of Virginia Key, about six miles away from Jack Mossler's apartment, mm-hmm. a horribly beaten man staggered into the sewage treatment plant. And this tiny island of Virginia Key is near a beach known for being a lover's lane type of place, like Mm -hmm. a parking lot where people would go and make out in cars. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Roy Weissel, was disoriented. He was covered in wet sand and blood, and he had been badly beaten up. Roy told police that he had left his car in Miami. So right now we're in these like little islands that are just outside of Miami. I've always wanted to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So he had left his car in a parking lot in a park in Miami and gotten into a car driven by a young man that he had just met at that park, uh-huh. right? So the man drove Roy to this makeout spot on Key, Virginia. And when they arrived, the man and some of his friends ambushed Roy at mm. beating him and robbing him. Yikes. So Roy is stuck on Key, Virginia. He doesn't have a car yeah. and he wanders into the sewage treatment plant just like looking for help right Uh so when he's talking to the police roy declines to file a police report and his wife shows up right and drives him to mercy hospital around 3 a.m so for him he was like i don't want to talk about this to anybody this is just my private business i just need to get to a hospital please right yeah so he leaves as soon as the investigative team for Jack Mossler's murder finds out about this bloody man discovered only six miles away from the Mossler apartment Mm -hmm. 30 minutes after the assumed murder. Mm -hmm. Police decide to check him out. So Roy 
is this big guy. He's 29 years old. He's young and he's strong enough to inflict that level of damage yeah. on Jack Mossler. Mm-hmm. So they saw him as definitely potentially a suspect. But after interrogating him and collecting his bloody clothing, they ultimately released him because his story basically seemed to check out. Yeah. They didn't have any evidence that it was different than what he said happened. Yeah. So after this, investigators turn back to Candace for clues, but she's unhelpful at best. She continues to push this robbery story that thousands of dollars worth of jewelry had been stolen, but she was too upset to actually give them a list of the missing items, (laughs) which actually she would never produce. Yeah. (laughs) That never came to light. She was only focused on this burglary idea and the idea of one of her husband's alleged many boyfriends could be potential suspects. Yeah. And then finally, Candace just lawyered up and stopped talking altogether. So that's her contribution to the investigation. All right. After running into a dead end with Roy Weissel, police caught a series of breaks in the case that led them to another suspect. So the white Chevy Bel Air that Governor's Lodge residents saw a dark-haired young man drive off in was found unlocked in the parking garage at the Miami International Airport Mm -hmm. with blood smudges all on the inside. Oh, okay, all right. Right? So they start catching all these breaks. So they get the car, and then a few days into the investigation, police find this big-ass palm print on a kitchen counter in Jack Mossler's apartment. This is significant because Jack Mossler's known for having everything wiped down every day. He's kind of a clean freak, Mm. so he does have a porter who's also like a slash assistant guy named Roscoe, who comes in like clockwork every day, wipes down all the counters, takes out the garbage. Yeah. So it's it's cleaned every single day. So they take this palm print that doesn't belong to anyone in the family and they run it through a fingerprinting database and mm-hmm. they have some semblance of that. And they find a match with a guy named Melvin Lane Powers. <laughs> who had charges mm-hmm. for running a magazine scam yes. in Michigan a few years earlier. Okay, the anteater. Right, the anteater. So nobody knows who he is yet, right? They then dust the white Chevy and they find Mel's fingerprints in the white Chevy yeah. with the blood. Okay. At this point, right, investigators have no idea who Melvin Powers was. Candace isn't talking about him. (laughs) And they have no idea what his connection is with the Mosslers, but they start looking into him because his fingerprints are everywhere. And he's a known convict. Right. And they were definitely surprised to find out that his last known address was Jack (laughs) Mossler's mansion in Houston. This guy was staying with his uncle and doing it with his uncle's wife, a.k.a. his sister's his mother's sister. Yes. yes. Uh, Wow. What's that called? Biting the hand that feeds you. I don't know. He's he's just eating the ant that. uh... (laughs) All right. All right. Stop. We got that. So (laughs) police are like, whoa, this is so crazy. Who's this guy? And. They go to the Miami International Airport to check flight records. And the investigative team was stunned to find out not only did dumbass Mel fly from the Miami International Airport back to Houston in the early morning hours after Jack's murder under the name M. Powers Mossler. Leaving behind bloody fingerprints and a time-stamped parking receipt in the vehicle. He had also flown into town under the same name just seven hours before the murder. So he flew in and left immediately. He flew in and left immediately. His fingerprints are all over the the Chevy Bel Air. And there's blood inside and a time-stamped. Receipt. I mean, I'm laughing at how incredibly dumb this guy is. This is a guy that like couldn't use a fork and knife, and he's from a family with some means. He's not like, you no, know, yeah, he's okay. Yeah, he, he's he, okay. I mean, he's at the very least, he's been living with his rich ass aunt and uncle for a long time and can't get his life together. I'm laughing at that, but also it is actually such a tragic ending for. Jack Mossler like I get that that's obvious on some level and he did a bunch of shady stuff in his life but this guy came from nothing and basically invented a whole shady personal financing business and accomplished absolutely the American dream 
and I am just getting hit Come with on, a man, wave. Come on, man, we're not even there okay, yet. Right, Quit sorry. talking about stuff. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I was like, where's this we're going to stop? All I'm right. just feeling so, bad for Okay, okay. okay. Well, you're going to yeah. feel a lot worse for him. Okay. okay. So they check into the flight records, and then they also start interviewing mm-hmm. the stewardesses and the flight attendants that were on the flight from Houston to Miami the day of the murder. Yeah. And they find a stewardess. They show her his Mel's mug shot. Mm. And she remembers him distinctly because Mel almost lost his flight. And since it was back in the 60s, they would let you onto the jetway. So that as they were taxiing away from the airport, yeah. Mel ran from the airport <laughs> down the jetway me, to the plane. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's like, yeah, I remember that guy. <laughs> and she said he was sweating profusely from uh-huh. this intense run jumped on the plane, didn't say anything to anyone, and was just slamming double scotches. Uh-huh. He also didn't bring a piece of luggage with him. Mm. So this is the, clearly the most suspicious, guilty-seeming person in the history of crime. Right. And then other evidence also starts presenting itself. Jack and Candace, particularly Jack, was this regular at a restaurant on Key Biscayne Mm -hmm. and the restaurant manager told police that a couple days before Jack was murdered Candace and Jack were sitting there having lunch and they were having this really intense heated argument about some mystery man some guy that they kept talking about he 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 right and eventually Candace raises her voice she starts yelling and she kind of makes a scene and stalks out of the restaurant Mm -hmm. you know and he says he remembers this day because jack seemed really embarrassed and then the restaurant manager said oh you can just settle your tab tomorrow go ahead and leave if you'd like to and so he kind of got up and left yeah the other thing that happened was after showing around mel's mugshot to different bars in the area they found a bartender who waited on mel the night of the murder Mm -hmm. at a place called the stuff shirt lounge at the holiday inn and he actually waited on Mel twice on the night of the murder. Once around 8.30 when Mel came in dressed in all black like a burglar, <laughs> pounded a double scotch, yeah. and then asked the bartender for a big, heavy, empty glass bottle that he could have to take with him. <laughs> oh my God. And the bartender remembered him specifically yeah. because he didn't tip. <laughs> he said... <laughs> He said, why did he ask me for this weird thing? And I did this for him and I gave him this big, it was basically, they used to sell family size Coke bottles, like bottled Coke. Yeah. And so he gave him one of these big family sized Coke bottles. Man, I will tell you right now, I bartended for all of my adult life. I would have to say no to someone who asked me for that. (laughs) The Stuff Shirt Lounge is a good name though. That's an awesome name for a bar. (laughs) So the thing about the bottle is that they hadn't found a murder weapon yet Mm -hmm. but that type of bottle actually would have worked for the injuries that jack sustained Mm -hmm. so they looked it looked promising but there's no bottle okay so like i said jack basically didn't tip stuffed the bottle into the inside jacket pocket of his coat and then left Mm -hmm. so the guy's like well this guy's pretty weird and he also says it was distinctive that he was wearing all black because this is like a tourist bar so everybody's coming in in khakis and like tropical shirts (laughs) and he's coming in dressed in this like black slacks (laughs) and a turtleneck sweater (laughs) (laughs) then mel came back uh around midnight Uh uh-huh pounded another double scotch without saying anything and then left again without tipping. So he says, yeah, I definitely remember this guy. He's a total weirdo. Yeah. So investigators are hearing all this stuff and they decide to follow up on Candy's alibi. And they find out on the night of the murder that somebody had actually called the ER at the Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami to let them know that Candace Mosler would be coming in in 30 minutes for her third migraine treatment in three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, this made the attending nurse roll her eyes all the way into the back of her head. <laughs> the nurse had already told Candace to stop coming to the ER and go yeah. to her family doctor <laughs> yeah. for headaches. Plus, it's not like you can call ahead and make reservations at the <laughs> ER. <laughs> yeah, but right, because right. they did all these things and Candace is so annoying, she's like, yeah, I definitely remember Candace being right. here at the yeah, ER, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the hospital secretary uh, also told police that while Candace was there, she yeah. received three phone calls from some man 
claiming to be her doctor with a thick southern accent now we are in florida yeah. but it sounds like it was much more like a georgia accent sure. which is where candace and mel are both from uh, i just love that the only reason they're memorable is because they were high maintenance annoying customers right and she the other reason is she, the er was actually pretty empty yeah but candace was really insistent that they take their time She's like, don't worry, take your time. I'll see a doctor whenever he's ready. I just need to lie down for a while. That is the classic sign of a horrible customer showing up. I'm so, so demanding, but it, whatever, whatever you need. If you need to take a breather, it's okay. I'm not going anywhere. I'll just be dying on the floor here. Right. And while the whole, so the other thing is, is like, yeah. she's, it sounds she's like she's buying time, time yeah, right? Right, right? And right, she's right. sitting here waiting for these phone calls that keep coming through the nurse's yeah. station. Just sucking the life out of every customer service representative this side of the Mississippi. <laughs> so finally, the last piece of evidence in this small time mm -hmm. comes out when investigators search Jack's desk at his Miami office and find the journal <laughs> with the entry talking about yeah. how he has to kill Mel and Candace before they kill him first. Yeah. So at this point, investigators are like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> they get this together, right? right. So by how did it take us longer than 10 minutes to put this together? So by Friday, July 3rd, yeah. about four days after the murder, Jack was buried at the Arlington National Cemetery mm -hmm. and investigators had the following timeline. Jack was killed around 1.45 a.m. on Tuesday, June 30th. Based on the coroner report and witness statements, the killer is assumed to be one single large man. Mm -hmm. Robbery did not seem like a motive. And not only had Mel Powers been evicted from the Mossler mansion, he had threatened Jack in front of officers. So obviously he had some sort of documented motive. They have the wait staff at the Hurricane Harbor restaurant and Key Biscayne, who had seen the Mosslers arguing about mm -hmm. 48 hours before Jack's death. Um, they have... Candace's weirdo late night trip to get stamps on the night of the murder. Mm -hmm. It's like obviously super suspect. They have the fact that Candace didn't call police as soon as she found the body, having Rita instead call Dr. Handworker. Mm -hmm. That seemed like a big fat red flag. Also, the suspected killer somehow had access to this white Chevy that is documented to belong to Jack Mossler yeah. and was driven primarily by Candace Mossler. Right. They had all the evidence to prove that Mel flew from Houston to Miami on the day of the murder. We have the bartenders placing Mel about six miles from the crime scene an hour before the murder, yeah. asking for a big, heavy glass bottle and dressed like a cat burglar. <laughs> we have Mel's fingerprints and uh, inside of Jack's apartment and inside of the Chevy with blood. Multiple people having confirmed Mel and Candace were having a public and ongoing affair is what they were able to find out as well. Yeah. And obviously this idea or this whiff of a motive right access to millions of dollars upon jack's death right i am so excited to hear about how they apprehend this guy mel so i'm not going to go into the minutiae of the arrest uh -huh. because it's this big old he said she said mess but basically you know, we're talking about July 3rd, right? So uh -huh. basically this is the 4th of July weekend. Yeah. So no one was able to get an arrest warrant issued to detain Mel Powers in Texas. Everyone was on vacation yes. in Texas. They're like, no, nah, I'm sorry. It's going to have to wait till Monday. They couldn't do it. So due to a series <laughs> of miscommunications, yeah. the Texas Rangers ended up arresting Mel in Houston on an outstanding traffic warrant for speeding. Uh, in an attempt to detain him while the murder warrant was being processed. Oh, so, okay. So they, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of our shady ass investigators, yeah. right, back in Florida, were trying to find some way to detain Mel. They wanted to get Mel into detention. Yeah. And they couldn't do it with this fresh warrant because everyone was out for the 4th of July weekend. Right. So they tried to find some way to do it. And essentially this just, it was a bad move on a lot of levels. Uh -huh. um, so some people were blamed for it. Some people were angry. There was a lot of back and forth yelling, but mm -hmm. this is what happened. All right. And I just want to add actually, part of the reason why it's dumb that they arrested him on this traffic warrant uh -huh. is because with the traffic warrant, he could just post bond immediately and get out. And then he's kind of tipped out that cops are looking for him. Right. And so he, what happens, that's what goes down and then he flees. 
Potentially. So that's part of the reason why some of the authorities were like really mad about them okay. doing this Hail Mary arrest. Mm-hmm. At any rate, it was decided that Texas police would try and hold Mel for his traffic warrant without bond, which is pretty much illegal. Mm-hmm. While authorities in Florida tried to push through this murder warrant. Mm-hmm. So... At this point, Mel could have demanded a lawyer or demanded to be allowed to post bond, but he didn't know any better. He just (laughs) didn't know the rules. And this was like two years before Miranda rights was a thing. Uh So you have the right to remain silent. You have a right to an an attorney. attorney. These things that you read to people as they're being arrested in in the States and other places. Yeah, right. So... It wasn't a thing in 1964, and they didn't have to tell him that upon his arrest. Meanwhile, Mel is sweating, handcuffed in a hot, windowless interrogation room in Houston, not knowing that he has the right to just leave. The only reason I think I know the Miranda rights is because when I was really, really probably way too small to watch it, I used to always watch Cops. Yeah, right. When my parents were looking. The TV show in the U.S., yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was a a classic. (laughs) All right, so... Major Manson Hill had actually flown down to Houston earlier with another detective to try and get to Mel Powers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So they finally entered this interrogation room where Mel is being held without knowledge of his rights. And when they sit him down to talk, dummy Mel immediately did what Florida investigators did not think he was actually dumb enough to do while being detained on a simple traffic warrant. <laughs> he confessed to the murder. He starts talking about Jack Mosler like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> also, can I just say real quick, I feel like these crooked cops are not yet proven to be dirty in their police work thus far. Well, this is pretty dirty. Right, not reading some of their rights. And, yeah. okay, and they've right. been doing kind of other things. I can't include everything, but uh-huh. they've been trying to set up and record phone conversations Mm -hmm. to entrap people into certain things. Okay, okay. Uh, The arrest and detain him on this traffic warrant Uh was totally crooked. They were like, try to keep him there. Just don't tell him he can leave. Sure, sure. Okay. Okay. And actually, this is where it starts to ramp up because they feel like if you don't know your rights, we can lie to you, essentially. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they sit down to interrogate Mel and... He says, I think I should have a lawyer. And they go, well, why don't we just ask you some questions first? So they don't technically (laughs) say no lawyer. Right. They just go, well, why don't we just do this first? He says, fine. And importantly, he doesn't know that he could stop talking at any time. Like, Mm -hmm. forget the lawyer. Yeah. He doesn't have to talk. Right. But he doesn't know that, right? So Mm -hmm. they sit there and they start interrogating him and lying about having particular pieces of evidence, right? Mm -hmm. They go, oh, we've got... They were taking papers that had nothing to do with him and patting them and saying we have all these <laughs> records we've been sure, watching sure. you right like making up pieces of evidence yeah. grilling him for about two hours and around 2 a.m on the 4th of july after not getting anything to eat or drink for the 12 hours since his arrest sitting in a sweltering interrogation room and not being aware of any of his rights mel confesses uh-huh. he doesn't mention candace But on this taped confession, he spills his guts and in the process refers to several pieces of evidence that the two investigators had actually made up to coerce the investigation (laughs) or the confession, Uh which would come back afterwards to bite them in the ass. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. But he does. He confesses to the whole thing. Yeah. So after this confession, they were able to book Mel into the jail on murder charges. And around 5 a.m., Mel was finally allowed his one phone call. He called his aunt at the Mossler mansion and immediately became the client of an incredibly hotshot defense attorney named Percy Foreman. All right. So Percy Foreman, he's this wild ass hurricane of a dude. He's six foot four, almost 300 pounds, and he was one of the best defense lawyers in the country at the time. Mm -hmm. So he's known for being extremely theatrical, wearing bow ties and putting on these elaborate acts, like pretending he doesn't know what's going on or to sort of sneak attack people. (laughs) And he would use his voice in this really 
you know, dramatic way. He mm-hmm. would yell in this big revivalist preacher voice. Is he also Southern? Yeah, he's from Texas. So he's just f- completely fitting the bill of the lawyers from movies in that era. Exactly, right. Yeah. So he'd yell with this big booming voice or he would whisper in court so you could barely hear him to kind of throw people off. <laughs> and he loved to quote the Bible. He'd quote the Bible uh-huh. all day long. Uh-huh. So by 1964... By most accounts, Percy Foreman was about 350 to one in winning murder cases. So he had tried a lot of murder cases. Once when he was asked about whether he felt guilty for getting so many obviously guilty people off, he said, quote, if they're guilty, my fee will be their punishment. (laughs) (laughs) And at first... You know, like Foreman goes out and he's like, I'm going to find Mel Powers. Obviously needs to find his client. He can't find him. Mm -hmm. He gets stonewalled. Apparently nobody knows anything about where he's being held. So he's somewhere in the Houston, you know, jail system somewhere. Nobody knows where he is. Yeah. Now, part of that is because the sheriff of Houston, Buster Kern, who, if you remember, was the same Houston sheriff with this severe vendetta against Candace Mosler for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This sheriff also had a vendetta against Percy Foreman and enjoyed jerking him around. Well, probably because he keeps catching these killers and then Percy gets them off. This is why. You okay. want to know why? Yes. In a 1952 trial, Foreman argued that Buster Kern had beaten a confession out of his client. And when the court ruled in Percy Foreman's favor, Buster Kern jumped over like the railing in the court and beat Percy Foreman's ass (laughs) in front of everyone so badly that Percy Foreman had to go to the hospital. Oh my God. So these two guys, they (laughs) They really don't like each other. (laughs) So Buster Kern was like, I'm not telling you where he is. They just stonewalled him out. So finally Percy Foreman locates Mel but it takes a while. And meanwhile, things are getting even worse for Mel because based on the information from Mel's tape confession, Buster Kern and the Florida investigators, like Manson Hill and all those guys, were able to get a search warrant for the Mossler family mansion where authorities found a set of black clothes belonging to Mel totally covered in human blood. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Of course. So on a stormy night on July 5th, Percy Foreman came to the Mossler mansion to negotiate his fee, Mm -hmm. which was $200,000 plus expenses. So without the expenses, Mm -hmm. the flat fee comes to around $1.7 million in today's money. Man, I so the Mossler's candy, you know, she has one of the biggest fortunes in the U.S. I feel like if a lawyer was going to get a rich family's nephew off a murder charge now they would charge way more than that i think it's proportional i mean i think at this point he was worth under 30 million jack mossler was yeah i think it was something around that if i Mm -hmm. if i remember correctly so 1.7 million is a pretty large percentage of your net worth i think i think it's a lot of money Mm -hmm. it's definitely a lot of money well and on top of that that doesn't include expenses and expenses aren't just lunches right expenses are like private investigators and also all of the attorneys that he hired to be on the defense team right so he says my fee is 1.7 million or whatever but he actually ended up hiring tons of high-priced lawyers from Florida. Yeah, and you hire experts and all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. right. And all of that is not coming out of this Totally. Fee. So because Candace is cash-strapped until she had access to Jack's estate, right, mm. she gives Foreman a down payment in $75,000 worth of jewels and the deed to Mel's trailer lot. So that's just to hold. Mm-hmm. And on July 6th, with Candace in charge, because Jack is no longer with us, the board of Mossler Acceptance, Jack's company, votes to assure Foreman's attorney fees in the event that Candace was unable to inherit Jack's estate, ensuring Jack would be paying for dumb Mel's defense one way or another. How did they vote vote in that way? Because weren't she they inherited- tired of his her craziness at board meetings and everything? Yeah, but if Jack dies, yeah, then Candace is Jack at the meetings. Candace is the boss. 
She's like the president of the board. Oh, so she can't get the estate, but she can take control of his business. Exactly. So she's taking control of all of his businesses. So this man, this poor man is stabbed to death and now he has to pay for his murderer's defense. Oh my God. Right. And the board is comprised of like all of Jack's friends. <laughs> it's just really wild. Yeah. So while this is happening yeah. and Candace is ensuring that Port Percy Foreman will be paid in full for all of this money, on the same day, detectives go to Mel's trailer park lot. And at the lot, in his desk, they find a big stack of love letters, mm -hmm. all signed by Candace in her name, along with a stack of romantic photos from Mel and Candy's trips together. <laughs> so they get like hard evidence, not just conjecture right. of their relationship together. Or I guess it's circumstantial evidence, but it's definitely, you know. Evidence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So with the letters in hand that afternoon, Major Manson Hill from Florida drives down to the Mossler mansion to really interview Candy. He's like, I'm going to get my teeth in. We're going to do this thing. Right? right. Yeah. And he marches up to the gate and he's stopped by her security guards. And the security guards say, sorry, you can't talk to Candace. She's in the hospital. <laughs> she has a headache. So Manson is like, are you kidding me? Uh -huh. I don't care if she's in the hospital. I have so much evidence. I have these bloody clothes that were found in your house. I've got the stack of letters. I'm going to talk to you one way or another. So he goes down to the hospital room, but they're denied entry again from guards that are standing outside of, security mm. guards standing outside of Candace's room. Yeah. Because apparently Candace was so ill, she couldn't even speak. <laughs> She can't speak to anybody. So they yeah. turn Manson Hill away. He's so mad, but he doesn't have a warrant. So mm -hmm. he can't go in there. He can't go talk to her. As soon as Manson Hill leaves the hospital, Candace calls a press conference from her hospital bed. <laughs> and the only rule of the press conference is that the press are not allowed to ask a single question. She basically calls the press conference just to tell them whatever kind of crazy bullshit she wants to tell them. And they about. gave that to her. Yeah, because everybody wants to know what's happening. Uh -huh. This is the, the story of the year, right? Right. So after this press conference, the next day, Candace in her hospital bed bashing investigators was the front page news. Yes, that's that was right. like everything. Page one. Yeah, yeah. Candace weekly lying in her hospital bed talking about how investigators are, you know, pursuing her and like unjustly like looking at her and she's mm -hmm. suffering from her husband's loss and all yeah. this kind of stuff. So the day after that. Buster Kern released Candace and Mel's love letters <laughs> to the Houston Post, which yeah. was in turn front page news. <laughs> Just some petty shit. Buster Kern is a punk. <laughs> but by this point, the walls are closing in on Candace. Yeah. She needs her own lawyer and she needed to get out of Texas. Uh -huh. So she fled Texas and headed to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota for treatment of this mysterious illness that made it impossible for her to talk to police without having seizures. <laughs> she's allergic to the badges. Yes, she's allergic. <laughs> she's allergic to the badges. Uh, and on July 21st, Candace inherited the bulk of Jack's estate and was named sole as executor and trustee of the entire estate. So Damn. she inherited everything, pretty much. Uh. Mel was extradited to Florida in the fall of 1964 while Candy pretended to have leukemia in Minnesota, living in a luxury apartment with her children and, while being treated at the Mayo Clinic. Okay. So. Are the three kids in the Swiss boarding school at this point? Or they she kept them because uh -huh. throughout this whole thing, uh -huh. you can't include everything in these stories right, because right. this book is amazing. Again, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. But like she trots out these kids for every press conference. Uh, uh -huh, she uh -huh. coaches them into what to say. She talks, mm -hmm. you know, like it's a huge part of her public I image. Yeah. She always said in the press, like, I'm rich with family. Like yeah, that's what right. she always says. So. While this is going on, they've got Mel into custody and Candy's at the Mayo Clinic like with this seemingly fake disease, right? Uh -huh. The prosecution is building its case. Florida State Attorney Richard Gerstein 
wanted to personally prosecute the case, which is not actually common for the Florida state attorney to do. Gerstein is this tough dude. He had lost his eyes serving as an Air Force pilot in World War II, and he had a history of prosecuting mob-related gambling establishments in Florida. Mm -hmm. So he was pretty much not intimidated by Percy Foreman or Candace's money or any of the things going on. So Mm -hmm. he's ready to go. Richard Gerstein was joined by assistant state attorney Arthur Hutto, who had done most of the legwork on the case. And both men thought the prosecution of Candace Mossler would show the people of Florida that they were tough on crime no matter who you were. Mm-hmm. It felt special to them. Right. Unless you're a mobster, then we'll, you know. No, no. These guys are like known for fighting mobsters these right. guys in particular it, they had like this right. big but one the, of the mob is still flourishing in miami at the time all right all right <laughs> yeah. like one of the big cases that um richard gerstein got involved with was cassius clay before uh-huh. he became muhammad ali yeah and Sonny liston had a prize fight in miami and it was widely thought that Sonny liston threw the fight mm-hmm. and so richard gerstein like came in and took both of the purses away until the full investigation had gone through yeah. and so everybody hated him yeah, like right, right, everybody right. who backed Sonny liston everybody who backed cassius clay yeah. like so he's like a very hated dude who's mm-hmm. kind of steely and not afraid of anything gotcha And also drawn to very high-profile cases. Yes. Yes. Now, both of these prosecutors wanted to make the incest thing and adultery the central focus of the case. So they wanted to prosecute Candace and Mal as a couple with the thought being that people who are this corrupt would easily be capable of murder. And also that their relationship helped fuel the motive for murdering Jack as a crime of passion as well as a crime of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So Candy is fully a suspect at this point. Yes. They just are trying to figure out how to arrest her. Okay. Because at this point, they only have the fact that she's uncooperative Mm -hmm. and that there are love letters to Mel signed by a woman named Candace. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot connecting her to the murder. Right. But there is a lot of evidence. Unfortunately... Major Manson Hill's shady interrogation of Mel was messing everything up. Totally. And Percy Foreman latched onto this immediately. Foreman filed lawsuits against the sheriff departments in Harris and Dade counties and dredged up the super not legal way they detained Mel Mm -hmm. and obtained this confession. Right. So that's kind of happening. They're seeing... Mm, some not good trends happening in terms of this investigative work. Mm -hmm. And then while they did have a ton of circumstantial evidence and witness accounts, the prosecution didn't have either of the murder weapons, which weakened the forensic aspect of the case and would definitely be a major issue if the confession was voided. So they see this case, obviously they did it right. I mean, (laughs) you know, like obviously so many things points to the direction of Candace and Mel But because of the way the evidence was collected, there's these weak points that they can see also kind of emerging. Yeah, right. I mean, this sounds like we're setting up for one of those verdicts that where someone obviously guilty gets off because everything else fell through the cracks. Right. Well, we'll see. In fact, we'll see next week. All right, I see what you did there. You see, dude? It's coming for you, man. Okay, so part one was uh, the life up until Jack's death. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I was calling him Jack, I think. I know. You I called I him did, that last time, I and did, I did it this time. I tried to explain it up top this uh-huh. episode about how it's Jack or Jacques. And I was saying Jack. You I was saying, saying Jacques. <laughs> okay, well, the f- part one was up until Jack's death, basically. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then this one was is up until the trial. Mm-hmm. So is part three going to be our final part, you think? Yeah. Part three is going to be uh-huh. the trial, which yeah. is wild yeah. AF. Right. The results of the trial. Uh-huh. And then the aftermath, which I think is something I did not see coming. Well, I'm really curious to see what happens because at this point, if I'm not mistaken, Candace isn't even a suspect yet, right? Or she's a suspect but not arrested. Yeah, but she's gonna be. <laughs> All right, okay. 
again, when we say this part, we truly mean it with all of our heart. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the reading, the research, the writing, the hosting. I did all the editing, post-production, co-hosting, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm talking about. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreons.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us at Muriel's Murders on social media, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. Our DMs are open and you can email us at Muriel's at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, please add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, find our other non-murder podcast at Hello in Your 30s wherever you are listening to this podcast. All right, that's it. Love you. Bye. Imagine a podcast. Now, imagine a musical. Now, imagine the two of them made one million babies. Well, you don't have to imagine it because it's real and it has a name. One Million Musicals. Each month, we bring you a brand new original podcast musical featuring talent from across Broadway, films, and TV. You'll hear tales of spooky ghosts, Wild West shootouts, adventures on the high seas, and much, much more. One million musicals. Only a few hundred thousand to go. A Campfire Media Podcast. Campfire.